you're here. We're in to season six, which just still seems insane to me. <laughs> 78 episodes in and somehow, somehow within those 78 episodes, I have yet to talk about some of my all-time favorite movies, like top 10 favorite movies, because yes, I do put together lists like that because I am a nerd and I really like lists and spreadsheets. They're in both. Okay. Okay. I have a spreadsheet and I have a list. Moving on. That's what we're tackling this season. Some of my all-time favorite movies. And because I have so many, I couldn't keep it to just one episode, one in episode. Uh, this is not going to be an exhaustive list. I did manage to come up with seasons that will be coming in the near future that will allow me to talk about others. There are so many 80s movies, so many 80s movies. But this time around, I decided to create some themes so that I could plan out double features, which leads us to our conversation today. Romantic adventures with whimsical or fantastical elements, a theme that has a lot going on. But you know, sometimes that's just going to have to happen to make the movie pairing thing work so that I can squeeze in as many of my favorites as possible. So romantic adventure with an element of whimsy and magic. Typically, the focus is equally on the love story and the chaos that our lovers are experiencing because of some unexpected obstacle or quest. In the case of today's movies, we have, well, we actually have two kidnappings now that I'm thinking about it, which is a little awkward. In one, the heroine is kidnapped because of her fiance's plot to start a war. And in the other one, the kidnapping is because some dude wants to convince another woman to fall in love with him. Our ladies, though, find themselves in distress because of no fault of their own, which does make me feel a little better, to be honest, thinking they would have probably been able to lead happy lives all on their own without the intervention of frustrating men. So that's the romance side. Then there's the adventure side of whimsy and magic thrown in. And that's where the fun, familiar storytelling lives. The hero, our protagonist, has a call to action. In the case of a romantic adventure, that can usually mean saving a heroine, finding a treasure, saving the day. Pretty early on, though, they'll meet a guide, a guardian, a wise individual that will give them insight into what their journey might entail. They might pick up a sidekick or two. They'll definitely face obstacles, a series of tests uh, that will attempt to keep them from succeeding, learning more about themselves along the way, because, you know, that is a journey of self-discovery until they are ready for the final showdown with their named foe. And the key to all of this is that they live happily ever after with the aforementioned love and they share a kiss that is considered the most passionate, most pure. I like a happy ending. That's why I watch Hallmark movies every Christmas season. They're filled with hope. And while they might not always be realistic, the dream of them, I think, makes them special. That, you know, you can't, you can't expect everything to turn out for you all the time the way that you want it to. But a movie can give you that, that little piece of that. And that gives you hope that maybe it might. You just never know. So why do I like this theme? Well... The romantic adventure is usually a lighthearted, plot-driven escapade. It's just, it's just fun. It's a popcorn movie that doesn't take itself too seriously, and it's usually got some really great dialogue, memorable quotes. I do love a quotable movie. I'm sure I've said that a time or two here on the pod. <laughs> the leads are beautiful, the villains are usually ridiculous, and the stakes are high. Without being intense, like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen kind of intense, that when you leave the theater or your cat couch, you realize you're just happily entertained. Now, what frustrates me about this theme? I have a love-hate relationship with the trope of the damsel in distress. As an independent, relatively self-sufficient woman, I hate the idea 
that the beautiful heroine always needs to be saved by a man. Where's the gumption, the resilience, the fortitude to face foes and save yourself? I mean, even refined ladies can hike up their skirts from time to time and get themselves out of trouble. But because we as humans can hold multitudes, there's also something so comforting and sweet knowing that should we really find ourselves in a pickle and need a little help with the rescuing, there's a person willing to jump into quicksand to pull us out. And chances are, because this is Hollywood and Hollywood loves idealistically beautiful people, that the fella is incredibly good looking, which just never hurt anybody. So first up is my favorite movie of all time. It's number one on the top 10 list. It has been for as long as I can remember, and I in no way see it being dethroned. It's my favorite no matter what mood I'm in. If it's on TV, I am watching it. I probably watch it a good five, 10 times a year. So I suspect it will always be my favorite, and that would be Rob Reiner's 1987 cult classic, The Princess Bride. The story starts with a boy homesick from school and a grandfather who arrives with a book because, come on, that's the best to read him, read to him to keep him company. It's a book about fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. The boy unenthusiastically agrees. I've met some of those boys that come into the library to give it a try. And so begins the love story of Buttercup, a really spoiled woman, and her farmhand, Wesley. And the two start a relationship after seemingly zero conversation. She bosses him around, and he says, as you wish. And all of a sudden, they want to get married. Uh, But Wesley has no money. So he decides to leave the farm to seek his fortune, convinced that one day he'll return to his love. Doesn't quite turn out that way. Instead, his ship is attacked by pirates, and he's believed to be dead. So mourning her love, Buttercup somehow meets a prince, even though the movie kind of makes you believe she doesn't really leave her home. So the prince who then eventually asks for her hand, and she agrees. So she's going to become a princess, even though it's quite clear that she has some reservations. She's got some bad dreams going on about the whole situation. She just doesn't look too happy. One day, though, while out on a ride through the countryside... Buttercup is kidnapped by criminals, Fazzini, Fezzik, and Inigo, posing as poor lost circus performers. The hope is that her disappearance will incite a war between the kingdom Florin, her kingdom, and the neighboring kingdom of Gilder. So we're going to call them the three, Three Stooges. They get Buttercup in their getaway boat, but before long they realize they're being followed. Turns out the dread pirate Roberts, the very pirate that attacked Wesley's ship, is on their tail. He follows them up the cliffs of insanity, and then he bests Inigo, the expert swordsman. He knocks out Fezzik, the giant, and finally has to challenge the brains of the operation, Vizzini, to a challenge to the death with Iocane powder. So the pirate who spent years building up an entire intolerance to Iocane powder then re-kidnaps Buttercup, kidnaps her again from her kidnappers, and drags her across the countryside while being pursued by her prince fiancé. So he's pretending to be uh, all, all upset uh, because we learned that the prince is actually the one that hired Fazzini and his men to, you know, steal the princess and incite the war. He wants a war. So she then, Buttercup, confronts the pirate about murdering the man she loves only to find out that the dread pirate Roberts is actually Wesley who took up the helm after years of training. So back in love, it didn't take long. The two escape into the fire swamp where they are faced with puffs of fire i don't know what those are called um they they tick and then 
flame bursts out of the ground. Uh, Quicksand and rodents of unusual size. And while the trees are quite lovely, they decide not to set up camp there. But upon their exit from the fire swamp, they are stopped by the prince who is caught up to him and his retinue, his posse. Terrified that Wesley will be killed again, Buttercup exchanges her life for his and agrees to leave with the prince while the prince pretends to let Wesley return to his ship. Instead, Wesley is knocked unconscious by a six-fingered man, a man that one of our lovable criminals, Inigo, has been searching for for years because this man killed his father. He wants his vengeance. So the six-fingered man takes Wesley to a, um, a tree cave, <laughs> a den, a secret lair, where he tortures him with, with running water that just doesn't seem to go into any orifice of you know on his person it just squishes him i don't fully understand this torture um and while the prince then is quickly losing control of his would-be bride who is just no longer at all in the prospect of marriage because her her pirate here no her pirate love is still alive so the prince is not too happy that she escaped from her kidnappers as well seeing as like i mentioned he had hired them to take her and start a land war with gilder so he's got to you know throw an audible <laughs> that's a good sports ball reference <laughs> i don't know um so the prince then promises buttercup that he'll send his four fastest ships to find wesley but if he can't find them he asks that she consider marrying him as an alternative to suicide she agrees but then he gets uber perturbed the morning of the wedding which she still doesn't want to marry him in his anger he goes to the tree cave layer den thing and cranks the water torture device all the way up uh air quotes killing wesley after locking buttercup in a room for insulting him meanwhile inigo and fezzik are back in the picture and have learned that the six-fingered man is nearby inigo's desire for vengeance is on a new level but he knows that he and fezzik alone can't storm into the castle to, to kill this man. So Inigo needs the help of the man in black, the one and only Wesley, because he knows he's a master swordsman. He beat him at the sword. So he asks his dead father, Inigo does, to guide his sword to where Wesley is being held. And it surprisingly works, leading him to the secret entrance of the tree cave where they find the dead pirate. So they decide to take him to Miracle Max, who um, claims Wesley is only mostly dead. And because... I don't know what to call him. Is he a wizard, a healer? Um, because Miracle Max hates the prince, he's more than happy to resuscitate Wesley so that he can help stop the prince's wedding to Buttercup. Miracle Max is all about ruining the prince's day. So our tiny crew of Wesley, Fezzik, and Inigo managed to storm the castle, rushing the wedding, which is the best scene in the whole movie, because Malwidge is what brings us together today. And then not only do they kill the six-fingered man, but they also capture the prince and say, better cup. And then there's kissing, and a grandpa promises to come back to see his grandson the next day to read it all over again because books win. Oh. A few fun tidbits about the movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger was not only considered but excited to potentially play the role of Fezzik, which later went to Andre the Giant. The story of The Princess Bride was originally written by screenwriter William Goldman for his daughters. The book came out in 1973, and it combined elements of comedy, adventure, fantasy, romance, and fairy tale, and was presented as an abridgment of a longer work by the fictional S. Morgenstern. And I like that 
plot device that he's telling the story based on a story of another person. It was It's a lot of fun. If you've not read it, I highly suggest it. It's kind of fun. Director Rob Reiner had to leave the set during Billy Crystal's scenes as Miracle Max because he couldn't stop laughing. It said that he was laughing so hard it was making him nauseous. Courtney Cox, Meg Ryan, and Uma Thurman all auditioned for the role of Buttercup. When Robin Wright was offered the role, she had to take a leave of absence from the soap opera she was on. It was Santa Barbara. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, to film the movie, and her bosses on the TV show tacked an extra year onto her contract in exchange for the time off. Haddon Hall was used for Flooring Castle. It's located in England's Peak District, and it has been owned by the same family since 1597. That is crazy. And has been featured in three versions of Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth, and Lady Jane, which Carrie Elways also starred in. And finally, the budget was an estimated $16 million, and the movie grossed almost $31 million worldwide. So why is this one on the list? Perfect casting. It's the perfect cast. Unbelievably, it's it's just got, it's unbelievably quotable. There we go. <laughs> it's sweet and sincere. It's just, it's a perfect movie. It even has a narrator, which we've already established I'm a sucker for. I think the genius behind this movie, though, is the very reason it was hard to sell to the studios as they were trying to get it made. It doesn't fit into a mold. It's a fantasy without a lot of magic. A romance without a lot of romance, an adventure that kind of ambles along without getting too intense. It's filled with odd characters that weave in and out pretty equally sharing screen time. It's fun for the whole family, but without feeling too childish. I mean, it's definitely accessible to an adult crowd. And what I think is most brilliant about this movie is that it hasn't really dated itself, that you can have the same experience watching it now that you would have had in the 80s. I mean, it I think you lose something with CGI. It starts, any movie with CGI will eventually date itself because the technology will change, but without those elements there, uh, you don't have that as much. And with this casting and the quotes and uh, just the memorable moments that people do in fact quote, I don't know. I, I just, I think it's one of the perfect movies. I love it. So that's my number one movie of all time. Another romance adventure that I really, really, really like is Stardust. This one has a lot of parts, a lot of moving parts with three plots kind of happening at the same time. Plot one, we have a boy named Tristan who's attempting to earn the affections of this beautiful girl that lives in a small English town known as Wall. Her name is Victoria. Uh, she's She doesn't have a lot going for her other than her beauty. She's kind of annoying. But she agrees to marry him and not the dashing Humphrey, played by a very young Henry Cavill, if he brings her a fallen star by the end of the week. And that task is easier said than done because the star has fallen into Stormhold. It's a kingdom on the other side of an actual wall that runs through the town. And nobody from... Tristan's side of the wall goes to the other side of the wall. It's off limits and it's guarded by a 97 year old, I don't know, like ninja man. <laughs> he has some sweet moves. So then that's plot number one, Tristan trying to find a fallen star to woo Victoria. Plot number two, you have the king of Stormhold. He's on his deathbed. He has all these sons and he knows that they're going to battle it out. And he actually kind of encourages it. He wants the strongest to become the the new king so he takes the royal jewel that's around his neck and using some like magical prophecy thing he sends it into the sky and so it goes shooting out the window and 
he then pits his sons against one another, says, you know, whoever finds this will be the next leader. And, and the, thro- the throne has to pass to a male heir. That's kind of a little important that you have to remember that. So they are not above killing one another, these sons. Turns out the royal jewel was the thing that actually knocked the aforementioned fallen star out of the sky. So that's plot number two, a bunch of brothers fighting it out to see who's going to be the next king of Stormhold. And they need to find the jewel, which just happened to hit the star. Plot number three, we have three sister witches who are determined to find the same fallen star because a fallen star means eternal life. It's the source of their power and their magic, and it keeps them not only young at heart, but beautiful as well. So everyone is converging on this fallen star, who just happens to be a beautiful lady named Yvaine. Tristan is the first to reach her because he uses a special black candle that reminds me a lot of Hocus Pocus. Um, And after an ill-advised kidnapping attempt, because kidnapping is, I guess, another theme of the day, the two experience a number of adventures together, including a run-in with the head witch, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who... um, is trying to catch up with her, of course. And then they are eventually found, Tristan and Yvain are found by air pirates who are capturing lightning to sell. The air pirates are one of the best parts of the entire movie. They are led by the one and only Robert De Niro, which is so unexpected. And he is known as Captain Shakespeare. He um, it pretends to be a rough and tumble kind of guy, but he secretly likes to don women's clothing. Turns out he's not a mean pirate, even though he puts on those airs so his crew doesn't think he's soft. It's a secret he doesn't keep, although, because they all know and love him anyway. And he helps them make their way, Tristan and Yvain, make their way closer to Wall. Um, So that's when they meet a fourth witch, who, unbeknownst to Tristan, has his mother held captive. So a long time ago, Tristan's father, Duncan, had managed to get to the other side of the wall and went to this market in Stormhold, where he met this beautiful woman who was being held by a witch. Um, Until that witch dies, the girl can't leave the witch's side, but they end up having a nice little night together. And then nine months later, there's a baby left at wall. And uh, the ninja dude brings it to Duncan because uh, Dunstan, not Duncan, Dunstan, oh my goodness, brings it to Dunstan because there was a note left. So Dunstan all of a sudden became a father. So Tristan's mother's still being held by this witch. And so that witch turns Tristan into a mouse for a brief time, but she eventually lets him go. And it's during this part of the adventure that Yvain and Tristan confess their love for one another and spend a romantic evening together in an inn. The next morning when Yvain wakes up, Tristan is gone, and she's afraid that he's left her to return to Victoria, the woman he supposedly loves. He was, in fact, returning to Victoria, but to kind of say goodbye and say, you know what, never mind, I don't want to marry you. Not knowing this, though, Yvain starts to make her way to the wall to find him when she's caught by Michelle Pfeiffer, who rushes her back to her dilapidated castle to suck her dry of her powers. Side note, during that um, interaction, Michelle Pfeiffer actually kills the witch, who is holding Tristan's mother captive. So she is now free. That's where and ends up getting taken with Michelle Pfeiffer and Yvain to the dilapidated castle. That's where the ultimate showdown happens. We have the witches versus Prince Septimus, who is the last man standing. All he has to do is grab hold of that jewel and he'll become the new king. Um, he's caught up with everybody. And then we also have Tristan, who is now joined by his mother, who has like I mentioned, been freed. And Tristan saves the day, of course, and has discovered that his mother was the long-lost princess of Stormhold. So 
now that the royal jewel is in Tristan's possession, I should note that Prince Septimus meets an untimely demise <laughs> during that scene, he becomes the new king because he is a male heir. So Tristan and Yvain live in Stormhold happily ever after. A fun few tidbits, another book-to-movie adaptation, this time based on a 1999 novel by Neil Gaiman. Miramax originally had the movie rights, but after they expired, Gaiman just didn't feel comfortable granting the rights to just anyone. So he started turning down, um, you know, numerous directors and young actresses who wanted to star and use it kind of like a jumping off point for their careers. Gaiman finally granted Matthew Vaughn the rights for free. Uh, Gaiman trusted Vaughn both as a friend and as someone who stuck to his word, something Gaiman considers a rarity in Hollywood. I hope this one is true. <laughs> Robert De Niro accepted the role due to his regret at turning down the role of Barbosa in Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, which came out in 2003. That is a movie I would have loved to have seen. I just, I can't see De Niro in the role of Barbosa, uh, but it would have been entertaining. <laughs> the three witches share their names with demonic creatures from Greek mythology. Lamia and Mormo were demons who ate children, the former being a former lover of Zeus, the god king, and Impusa, who was a creature sent by the goddess, uh, I don't know how to say this, I should know, Hecate, Hecate, I don't know. <laughs> We're just going to move on to eat travelers. Anyway, uh, Captain Shakespeare's flying boat. Last tidbit is called Caspertine, named after Matthew Vaughn's two children, Casper and Clementine, which I thought was very sweet. So why is this one on the list? It's Another bit of casting genius, Michelle Pfeiffer is beautiful and beautifully horrible as Lamia, the witch. De Niro steals the show as Captain Shakespeare. Uh, he's hilarious. We get um, cameos by Ricky Gervais and um, Sir Ian McKellen as the narrator. Another narrator. You do know how I love a narrator. And Mark Strong as Prince Septimus. And Mark Strong is one of my favorite actors over the last couple of years. He's usually in a um, supporting role. He doesn't really stand out, but I love what he does. I, I always tend to gravitate towards his characters, no matter what he's in. And then we have Charlie Cox, who does an amazing job as Tristan, uh, the dork turned dashing king. Uh, we even get a cameo from Ben Barnes, who plays the young Dunstan. Just, oh, Ben Barnes is so handsome. Um, Char fun fact, I did meet Charlie Cox once. Uh, Watson and I went to New York City a few years ago, right before the world kind of went crazy in 2020 and we saw a play with Tom Hiddleston, Charlie Cox and, and he, we were there when he came out of the theater door and stage door and we were able to meet him and he signed our playbills. He was very nice. It is also uh, has a lot of Neil Gaiman's storytelling flair all over it, which you got to love. And I really appreciated all of the moving parts. There's something exciting when there are so many plots, but everybody is kind of converging towards one end goal. I always kind of like that. The The movie is fun. It's funny. And it's the perfect mix of romance and adventure. It's just, it's a good time. But that's it for today. Hey, we made it through two movies. That's all for our conversation about a couple of my all-time favorite romance adventures with a bit of whimsy and fantasy. In the next episode, we're switching gears to the theme of... And I apologize for this. The theme is called Some Kids Go on Adventures. I never claimed these were going to be great themes. As I mentioned, 
I had to create some themes just so I could put some movies together. But we're going to be talking about The Goonies, which is in the top five of my favorite movies of all time, and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I hope you tune in. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other people can find the podcast and we can have more conversations about pop culture, even though I don't really know what I'm talking about. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at gnomegirlm and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.